Wait, what? <laughs> no, I don't. I have a phone. Chris, Chris does everything. What? He writes everything by hand. Oh, I slide rule. Michael's going to turn his computer rule. around and let you see it. So at least, no, I will at least five times on the show. <laughs> That's sort of my MO. Headphones? Headphones. Headphones, yeah. Uh, you right. know why? It just will help you regulate the sound of your own voice better because you'll hear awesome. yourself if you're too far from the mic. So it's a little psychological trick, but leads to leads to better audio. Uh, how Mike is good you, here. So how long are you guys in town for? I got in last night. Both of us came from Richmond yesterday. Yeah, but oh, I live here. Were, were you doing the, something you together? Live, yeah, live we here. were at the, the Markel annual meeting. Uh, Chris is a longtime Markel shareholder. And he's, hmm. a, he's a board member. So is Morgan technically your boss? Practically. I mean, in a sense. <laughs> No, in, in every way. I'm a shareholder. I'm a shareholder. Vote him out. Vote him out. I'm going hostile. What's the stock up today? It's down 2%. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, that's <laughs> it. We're, we're going hostile. I read about I read about Markel in the book. What's, what is that book called? It was so Smarter, good. wiser, happy. No, nope, the other one. The one, Dear... Dear shareholder. Is that what it was? It's, it's, probably, it's probably in there, yeah. Is that Jeff Graham's book? Yes. That was great. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah. There's like 20 companies in there, right? Yeah. And... They they take it's the letters, letters that have been written from yeah. the to the shareholders, and then tell the story of the company. And Tom Gaynor has been the Markel CEO for for a long time. He's been at Markel for thirty years. Yeah, he writes a great annual letter. It's really really worth the read. It's great. I would actually bet that if you did a portfolio of companies where the CEO personally writes the letter, that would be a it's portfolio that would have outperformed for thirty years. There are probably, probably only yeah. eight of them. Yeah. And what about CEOs with a twenty year tenure? Probably pretty rare too. He, Tom has not been CEO no. for ten. Uh, he's been he's been co he's been sole CEO for uh, four months. Before January, as a co CEO structure with a guy named Richie Witt, and they had been co CEOs for five or six years. And before that, uh, a guy named Alan Kirshner was CEO for twenty years or so. Yeah, and Tom was a crank in the investment department. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I met him thirty years ago. 30 to 33 years ago. When you were 10 years old? No, I, I met him at, at in, we were sitting, uh, he was sitting behind me at the Orpheum Theater in Omaha at a Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting. And he he, he changed the arc of my my life, actually, and, and my career. He, he well, I, I used to have this uh, line. I, 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 I was actually in seminary for a time. And I, but I grew up in this investing family. I was a, a you know, my grandfather, my father, they loved what they did. I mean, they, they loved investing and they made it interesting. I'd worked there in summers, but I didn't think, uh, for me, I wanted to go to seminary. And, and, uh, and when I ended up going back and, and uh, working and investing, I, my throwaway line was, and ever anybody would ask how it was going, I'd say, well, it's really interesting work, but it's not a high calling. And I made mm. that line when I first met Tom, like in the first five or 10 minutes. And he said, actually, you're wrong. Like, stewardship is a biblical profession. Like it is, it is an incredibly high calling. And it totally reoriented me from this idea of investing as this fascinating puzzle and studying current events to, to this idea that actually you're, you're a steward for somebody's life. So when life you think savings. about it as stewardship, as opposed to like, oh, we're just going to make these rich people richer. It's a different, it's a different uh, frame. Yeah. Well, I actually, Morgan and I were talking about this earlier because very early in, in my career, there was this path that we could have taken to become essentially a hedge fund, but yeah. much higher fees, you, you know, and, uh, uh, and I, I thought about it along those lines, you know, making rich people richer. I, I think our average client might have $35,000 with us. Yeah. So it, it is, it's a totally different mindset. So it's, it doesn't have sort of the glamour and the, the high fee structure and all of that of, of, a, of a hedge fund. What, but what, it, per, what percentage of CEOs do you think write a personal letter to the shareholders once a year? 
If you it's, had to guess, it's not even percentage. It's like the, you can count them on. Come on, I would guess one yeah. percent. Well, Bezos right. does now, and, and Bezos, uh, Bezos did. He doesn't anymore. Diamond. He doesn't that's anymore. Right. Jamie Diamond. 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 Yeah. Diamond's letters, I think, are probably the most prominent. Uh, now. I said they're the new Buffett letter. Yeah. 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 I. I and, I, and they're literally they're forty pages. Yeah, they're long. It's, a, well, it's a book. What, what's your? You said you met this guy at the Berkshire meeting. What's your Berkshire uh, origin story? Ah, well, it was. I mean. It was sort of legend sort of growing up, but but uh, uh, I met Charlie Munger probably around then, around 1990 or 91. Uh, uh, how old were you, you when you met him? Well, I was trying to sell a business to okay. him. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a true story. It was a securities lending business, and my grandfather had it in a brokerage firm that he had started. But my grandfather was determined when he died that all of his money, and he had started, he borrowed $100,000 to get started. It was $800 million by then. But 100% of it was going to charity. He didn't believe in inheritance. And he wanted somehow his firm to live on, like the name, but there wasn't going to be any capital. And, and one of his operations was a security lending operation. And I don't know if you know that business. It's a very back office intensive sort of business, yeah. and it's a little opaque. And, and uh, But I had thought that Berkshire could be a a good could be in that business because they had a portfolio of appreciated securities at very high credit rating. And, uh, and so, you know, there were like 17 employees. And, and so we felt a certain amount of, uh, uh, of duty to them. They'd been at the firm a long time, but they were, it was a totally different culture. And I, uh, mentioned it to, uh, so I got an opportunity to have breakfast with Charlie and I talked to him about this business and he stopped me and he said, I have no interest in a business run by seven guys named Vinny. <laughs> but I am interested in how you stock lo stock loan. Yeah, yeah. 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 And he said, sure. but I'm interested in how you thought of Berkshire. And, and then he, he left an open invitation. He said, anytime you come to LA, you could see me. And so it, like Tom Gaynor, he became this enormous influence in my life. And, and uh, and I, I actually went on the board of Berkshire. He hasn't Hathaway. changed. He hasn't changed at all. Uh, Charlie? Yeah, it doesn't seem that way. Oh no, least. he hasn't changed at all. No. Which is which is great. <laughs> it is amazing. How long have yeah. you been on the board? Uh, just a couple of years. Just a couple of years. What is well, that? Save your seat for me. What is yeah. what is that response? I'm a Berkshire shareholder, like hopefully lifelong. What is that responsibility like? What do they ask of you as a board member? Well, I think that I mean I like to joke that. You know, I'm from a, a family culture where the, the motto is always work before play. Yeah. Or, or Morgan and I were talking about ways that you manipulate yourself into doing things that you don't want to do. And so you eat your vegetables and then you get dessert. And I was saying Berkshire is sort of the opposite. Like you get the, the dessert now because you get to be with Warren and Charlie and this just Yeah, incredible. it can't feel like work. It, no, no. It's an incredible gift. And and they are so wired for stewardship and duty that, yeah. you know, the idea that you're representing the shareholders seems sort of crazy, crazy redundant. Right. Um, but I think that in the future, the, the work will be uh, that Berkshire's structure is so unorthodox. Yeah. And it so flies in the face of all of the conventional forces of consultants and investment bankers and corporate structure uh, uh, that it, I think the, the responsibility of the board will be to defend and to sort of hold back that sort of conventionality and uh, and to really protect and preserve the culture that's been built there. And I, li I like it. And I think uh, as a shareholder, I felt really good coming away from last weekend
just seeing Greg on stage and uh, it's really the first time that they've put him that front and center. I know it, I know uh, Jane has been up there, but, you know, to see him there and just, like, feel that continuity starting. Yeah. Um, I, I know right. that's that was deliberate. And uh, Yeah, and I think Ajit also did an incredible job. I mean, the, the que- there were some questions about Geico and his just candor and straightforward – uh, a way of describing what had been the challenges, what was the opportunity. And, you know, I, I always like to joke, can anybody name the second CEO of Exxon? Right. Or or the third. Right. But what John D. Rockefeller built was a, a, a collection of assets that had enormously long lives, cash-producing assets. Yeah. And he built a culture that was engineering-focused, totally rejected Wall Street, rejected really any outside interference, but was incredibly deliberate, thoughtful. You know, I think there was a comp plan. If you were to read the proxy of Exxon a few years ago, I think their executive compensation vests like 10 years after retirement. After retirement, right? Because that's, That's there's nobody, there's no other company that thinks like that, except in some ways Berkshire. I mean, Berkshire thinks, you know, you, you have a management that is so, passionately protective of their successors and the people that have entrusted their savings there. And uh, so I think in some ways I like to think that people are saying, who's the next Warren Buffett? I, and I feel like that's like saying, who's the next John D. I Rockefeller? already said it's, it's Chamath. I already <laughs> I said that on open mic two years ago. I love how you guys laugh, but he actually said no, I literally said it. Uh, but I didn't put a time. I didn't put a time. And in Josh's defense, he said might. He did say might. And I said might. <laughs> so, all right, so maybe he was wrong. Uh, I agree. There's no, there's no next Warren Buffett. And based on what you're saying and, you know, what shareholders feel, it doesn't need to be. John, yeah. let's get this so the party structure, started. The structure is there. Good, let's start it. Three claps are coming in. All right. We're so excited to have you guys. You can hear the crowds going nuts. <laughs> Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Redholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ridholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's show is brought to you by our friends at Crane Shares. One of the most popular investing strategies over the past couple of years has been uh, cover call strategies, particularly in ETFs. They they uh, they blew up over the last, I don't know, 12, 24 months. We've spoken about the Crane Shares China Internet ETF before a million times, K-Web. Uh, there is now a cover call strategy on that. The ticker is KLIP. That's CLIP. If you would like to learn more about the fund, visit craneshares, that's with a K, dot com slash CLIP with a K. Ridholtz Wealth Management is coming to Austin, Texas in June. If you've ever wanted to learn more about what it's like to be a client of the firm, this is your chance. This spring, we opened an office in Austin, and we're coming to celebrate on Monday, June 12th, Tuesday, June 13th, and Wednesday, June 14th. I'm bringing eight of my top financial planners and client service people with me for a week of meetings, music, and barbecue. If you want to talk to us about your situation, this is how you can get in touch. Send us an email, info at withholtswealth.com with the subject line, Austin. That's info at ridholtswealth.com, subject line, Austin. 
We have a limited number of meeting slots available, so don't wait. One other thing, if you're a financial advisor in Texas and you're looking to take your career to the next level, this is a great opportunity to meet us. Founding partner Chris Venn is coming with me, as well as new firm president Jay Tinney. We love our fans and followers in Texas. See you in June. All right, 93. This is going to be one of the biggest shows. This is going to be one of the biggest shows we've ever done. No pressure. Uh, I, no, no, no pressure at all. But I have to say, we are so blessed to have the guests that we have in the house. And I actually want to uh, give Michael the. Uh, I want to give Michael the microphone to do our oh, introdu- oh. do our introduction. Shocking! All right. Oh, the the future proof introduction you said. Oh, no, listen to me. Introduce our guests. Ah, oh, okay. Uh, we've got Morgan Housel. Everybody knows who Morgan is. Let's move on right, to Chris. Right, only kidding. Not, only that's kidding. not an introduction. I'm only kidding. <laughs> okay. Morgan Housel is a partner of the Collaborative Fund, but most notably known as uh, just the best financial writer of our generation. That was literally the title you gave Ben Carlson. Well, no, because I said that. I never said that. You know what I did? You know what I did? I we, said, we might be ben, no, I said ben is the best financial writer of his generation. Okay. And you are the best financial writer of yours. <laughs> Ben's got you by three years. That's right. Different genera- totally different, different things. Is Ben Gen X, Gen X then? Yeah, Ben Gen X. All right, so it's different. You're the, it's you're, different. You represent the millennials. I'm, I'm an elder, elder millennial. So Morgan is the author of The Psychology of Money, which literally sold two million books. Three. Three, Three million bucks. <laughs> Two million. Not, Please. Not to rub it in. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So that's got to be, honestly, like a top 10 nobody financial. Sells, nobody sells $3 million no, financial no, no, no. books. No, but of all, that must be all-time top 10. Yeah, I think I think it might be like, for finance books. I think it's Well, what top, are they? Is it Rich Dad? Rich Dad, The Intelligent Investor. Napoleon Hill? Uh, like, no, Napoleon think, Mill no, and Pill. And dude, think it's right you probably sold more books than security analysis. Securities analysis? Is it secu- securities? The right? intelligent investor no, is forget about that. That's because, different. Well, nobody bought securities analysis. Right. It's a tone. No, yeah. no, no one reads that one. Yeah. No, but people bought it. Nobody read it. But, but anyway. No, but no. you're like in pop. You're now pop yeah. part of pop culture. Like, like it's crossed famous. out of. It's crossed out of financial book. It's book. I, I That's may, what I'm saying. It's may good. have pushed out Ben Carlson as the, as the writer. Yeah, of the oh my God. <laughs> I'm kidding. We, oh we my God. Go, go, go easy on Ben. And wait, Morgan's got another book that is uh, out for pre-order. You just have to wait four months. But in November, or what's, eight what, months or whatever. what's yeah. the title? It's called Same as Ever. And it's about the behaviors that never change over time. So just like what, what people have always been doing that they will always do. And I think there's so much focus on Wait, so change. you rewrote Sapiens? <laughs> what, what are we saying here? <laughs> 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 it's, it's, it's not quite as broad as Sapiens. Sapiens for kids. But there's this <laughs> No. There's a, I just think there's Little so sapiens? much attention. Is that what like, you did? It's called Little Sapiens. All right. right. No, I like it. It's a good idea for a buff. It's just like, and so there's so like much focus on everything that changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just looking at, it's just 23 stories about things that never change. Okay. Like the, what people will always be doing when, So that's going to be ready for what? Like uh, the fall or Christmas? It comes out November 7th. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll we'll make sure that we we link out for the people that have not yet read Psychology of Money. Uh, my wife read that. She hasn't just, read an really? investment book ever. And I said, what made you pick that up? She said, I don't know. Like you always talk about Morgan and I like the cover and his picture of a brain. And I wanted to learn something. That's the secret. You didn't do a picture of the stock exchange. No. You didn't do a picture of like somebody trading on a keyboard. There, there were 50 iterations of the cover though. And all of them were that until number 50 that we can't. But came that's a brain. big part of crossing over yeah. is like the cover. 
Yeah, it's so it's obvious. really important. They're like, don't judge a book by a cover, but everybody does. Everybody literally does, does for a cover. It's really, it's just like in a blog, it's the title. In a YouTube video, it's the thumbnail. Those things are really oh. important. Well, listen, we're we're proud of you. We're jealous and proud still. Uh, all right, Chris Davis is here. Chris is a chairman and portfolio manager for Davis Advisors, an investment management firm with over twenty billion dollars in assets under management. That's underselling you. Obviously, you are. You're an eminence. Is that too much? Oh, I like the sound of that. They, no, but, you but, know, but I, I want to just say one, one thing about, about Morgan's book is, is that the reason that your wife loves it is because it's not an investment book. It's a book about how to be happy. Yeah. It, it, it's really a book about equanimity. And and that's what's so powerful about it is it's it's the opposite of a get rich book. And it sort of crept into the tent that way. And then people were, were totally misdirected. Yes. And then they realized, oh, wait a minute. It's not about how I get the highest possible return. It's not about how I get rich. It's about how I find contentment, and how I stories, get off the crazy train. And stories are so powerful. Like every chapter is a, at least one story. And yeah. people, that's how people really learn. They, they learn from their own experiences, and then they learn when somebody tells them a story. It's always the best story. Like the Valet how, Parker how many, one. Right. How many formulas do you remember from the night before your test in college? Like yeah. zero. Nobody – but how many – if you hear a good the jan- story, the janitor you'll remember who, it forever. Who accumulated stocks and never yeah. sold. Yeah, like it's that, simple. These stories are important. Not only do you remember it, but it's, it's easier to contextualize your own life with that. So okay. I feel like in blogs, it's the same. Like, Josh, you tell stories. You tell stories. It's If your blog is just a data dump – it's and it's out. And even Nick Majuli, who is dollars in data, he's a storyteller. Yeah. And that's why his blog is great. It's it's like that. It's always like that. And there are a lot of good finance minds out there, like really technical minded people. But if you're just putting out charts and it doesn't, and you could even say like JC, he's a chartist, but he tells a story and he's got a personality. So like it, it, that's it. Even when it's Boy, does pure, ever. even yes, when it's does. pure <laughs> analytics, it's that's like the people that get ahead are the ones who tell the best right, story. And you are speaking at Future Proof this year. Yeah. Okay. Are you talking about the psychology of money, or know. are you talking no about? Idea. You tell me. We yeah, don't know yeah. yet. It's your no, event. I, it's a, it's a secret. Okay. And, and Chris, hey, can, can we go back to the eminence part? Yeah. <laughs> we, we seem to have drifted <laughs> a little bit here. Chris, you're right. I'll stay on Chris, task. You're right. I want to read. I want to read this. Um, this is from the Davis Advisors website. Uh-oh. I thought this is. I'm a. I, I like uh, Wall Street history. I'm really into this stuff. He's just going to read the fine print. Uh, our firm traces its roots to yeah. Past performance does not guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> our firm traces its roots to legendary investor Shelby Cullum Davis, a leading financial advisor to governors and presidents, who parlayed an initial investment of a hundred thousand dollars in the late '40s into more than eight hundred million. By the end of his career in the early 1990s, in 1969, Shelby Cullum Davis's son, Shelby M.C. Davis, founded Davis Advisors after serving as the head of equity research at the Bank of New York in order to offer the Davis investment approach to outside clients. 1940s. And so you come along in, into this and then you build on it and the firm is still doing what it's doing. And that's like rare on Wall Street. You yeah, well, I'm, I'm the lived. generation that usually screws it up. And, You're and, the third uh, generation. Yeah, yeah, shirt sleeves to no shirt pressure. sleeves. And, and, uh, but it was interesting because my, my, I think part of the peculiarity of, of both my father and grandfather is they didn't believe in inheritance. They really had that view. Now, 
I was you, still born still, on third still, base. Are you still and, bitter about that? Or uh, you... Well, a little bit. <laughs> he said, my, my grandfather said, I wouldn't want to ruin you. I, I wouldn't want to rob you of the opportunity of making a living. I'm like, well, you could rob me a little bit. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. just a little. Oh, that's uh, beautiful. But, uh, and, and so they were very clear about that from the beginning. And, but they also said, we're going to give you, every, I mean, we're going to put you on third base. And you're on third base because your education, reputation. What does Buffett say? Uh, Want to leave my kids uh, enough that, enough that they could do anything, but not so much that they can do nothing. Yeah, is that, was exactly. that him? Went, that, that was that was one. Okay. I heard the story from Munger recently. One of his rich friends said, "Charlie, how do I?" He said, "If I give all my money to my kids, is that going to ruin them, ruin their ambition?" And Charlie said, "Of course it will, but you have to do it, otherwise they'll hate you." And I think I thought that was it's like it's that's like the curse of it. But it seems like you you guys pulled it off. Okay. It sounds like there's a way to do it where it's like I will give you the advantages that you need, but you have to do something. Yeah. I mean, like, was there any animosity when your grandfather had eight hundred million and you didn't get any of it? Well, <laughs> I, you know, I I was already working with him. I felt like I had been, you know, and and he gave me a passion for this vocation. You know, both. You know, I used to describe. My, my, my father used to commute from uh, uh, Hoboken. Uh, he'd take the Erie Lackawanna train out. He lived out in Tuxedo. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing name? And, you know, we'd go down and meet the train, and it was a big deal coming in when I was a little kid. And, and these men would get off that just, you know, when you think of those lives of quiet desperation, like gray, beaten down, getting off the train. And, and my dad would come out, like, just exuberant. And, and if, if he was driving us somewhere, we'd stop and see a company and— he never, it, it was a little bit like if you want your kid to learn French, you can like put him in French lessons and you can get a tutor and, you know, and, or, or you could just go to France for a while. Yeah. And it, it's, it was a totally so different you grew way. Up of, in the, you grew up in the, in the lifestyle. And yeah, just be, and seeing people, two generations that were so excited about what they did. My grandfather called it the best game in town and, you know, he just loved it. So I, I don't think there was any, and, and I will say, and, and especially in case my father hears this, I don't want to be an ungrateful whelp because my, my father really actually surprised. He has six children and we were all completely flabbergasted when we got a letter from him about, I want to say three years ago. And he said he had actually set up trusts. Uh, for each of, of the six of us uh, that he hoped would be used to pay for our kids' education. And, and I think his mindset was that I want you to be free not to ever feel obligated to take a job that you don't like or feel that, you know, you're one medical procedure away from uh, uh, really uh, 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 being desperate. And it, and it can happen quick. Yeah. And uh, well, so that, that surprised us all. In fact, we all got together like, wow, this he really gave us the head fake. What were your grandfather and father's philanthropic um, – interests? Like what were the things that they were passionate about giving the money away to? My grandfather had very, very much a, a sort of a political orientation. You've got to think it was a time, you know, in the 60s and 70s, especially, uh, he had always wanted to be in public service. So his, his namesake, Shelby Cullum, nobody's ever heard of him. And yet 50 years, this man was a governor, a senator. He was a senator from Illinois. He died in 1917, but he'd been governor of Illinois and a freshman congressman under Lincoln. And it was sort of wow. my grandfather's like role model. Like that's yeah. who he wanted. Buffett's By dad the, too. Yeah, but yeah. I will tell you, I read this man's autobiography. In fact, we were all sort of obliged to. And it's like, it's, I don't know, what, however thick that is, 400 pages about the Interstate Commerce Commission and some problems with the Mormons and the Hawaii. I mean, it was so boring. Like, you can't believe it. And on the last page, he says, I'm writing this as an old man uh, from my uh, apartment in Washington, D.C. 
I have outlived all of my children and both of my wives who were sisters. Uh, uh, That's different. Su- uh, successive, you know. Uh, he wasn't married to them both at the same time. Uh, and and so I'm leaving this book as my as my legacy. Oh, he has and I think else to tell, three or four hundred pages, and you, you <laughs> talk about burying the lead. I had no idea. Uh, but so that had always been of interest uh, to my grandfather. And so when the, the in, when he watched in his mind the country going to hell, you know, why isn't Princeton teaching proper history? It's got all these communists in there. I mean, it's, it was very sort of familiar idea, demonstrations in the street, people, uh, things being burned and riots. Uh, uh, so he was very involved in what I would call sort of conservative political organizations and, you know, some like Hoover and yeah. that were, were behind sort of Reagan's election, the Heritage Foundation. So my father went a completely different direction and he sponsors and, and at a cost of, you know, m- millions and millions of dollars per year. Uh, I think he is the largest funder of higher education for uh, kids that have this sort of international orientation. And so, you know, it might be 20 or $30 million a year that, uh, oh, that, wow. uh it, so it's an enormous program, uh, that's called the world scholars fund, but it, Josh uh, and I were just talking about this this week. There was a big article in the times about the largest generational wealth transfer ever yeah. and how it might worsen inequality. But I was making the point that one of the silver linings of all of this money is there are real philanthropic efforts today that I know it sounds like your, your family has had in place, but that did not, that was not like global or there was not a necessary thing in the sixties. Yeah. Although it's, it's, it's funny. I lived in Europe for a long time. It is one of, if you want to take enormous pride in being an American, you could start there. The, the culture of philanthropy, and I would say it was really started with Ben Franklin. Uh, uh, you think of what Ben Franklin created in terms of philanthropic impact that rolled through, you know, Pennsylvania, the city, and, right? uh, the city and the state, uh, for 150 years and continues to this day. Uh, uh, but certainly Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller. I mean, these were enormous, the Mellon family, enormous fortunes uh, uh, that changed the world. And, and, and that's uh, why and the, that name, does, the names still live on because the money still lives on. Yeah. And, yeah. There, and there's no tradition of that anywhere else in the world. Is that true? It, it, yeah. It doesn't exist in Europe, in the UK. Why? and Asia. I don't, I think it has to do with this view, this sort of, I, I, I read a book about architecture in the Hudson Valley. It was a pretty obscure book. It was written in the 19th century. And it, it included blueprints for building a country house because you had the middle class was being created then. And there was this idea of, wow, people in the city could afford to, and, uh, and these blueprints were these very modest homes that you could add on to over time. And in the beginning, he says, why not palaces? Why not? And he said, because our system of democracy will not allow for an aristocracy. And so what we want is the capital to continually be recycled, and that's what we expect. And he predicted, the author of this book predicted that the great mansions that were being built in Newport and the, would become uh, would have to become educational institutions or religious institutions. And so many have. And they did. Yeah. It was right. Or and, just uh, torn down around here. Or just torn down. And, yeah. and uh, so that – I think it has to do with this, you know, this, this anti-aristocracy view that was so sort of embedded – in uh, in this history, you know, think we don't that- like it. We don't like aristocracy in this country, but we do like oligopoly. And there are some like there are some differences, but like you, you know, there's there's a, there's room for one. Yeah, you know. I mean, how many people we, signed we, the giving pledge? A lot, a lot. A lot. Uh, I want to. So all right. So I wanted to hear how the two of you hooked up. 
because you guys, you guys are like. I don't I know hope what you're are, not using hooked up in the. <laughs> no, not the way my not the way my teenagers finance, use it. Tinder. <laughs> how did you guys? How did you guys meet and, 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 hit, and hit it off? I'll 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 let Chris tell the story. Okay. Yeah, I, well, it, this was amazing because I I read this book when it when it first came out, and I I really thought like if one of the the most uh, I think the the highest praise you can give a book about finance is if it's useful. And I read it. I thought this the is the bar. most useful <laughs> book on on finance that I've I've really ever read, in terms of the breadth of its appeal. Right? You think of like one up on Wall Street, but you know, to me, one up on Wall Street was a little bit dangerous because it was telling everybody, yeah. "Hey, just buy find something know. at the mall yeah, yeah. that you like and buy the stock." And 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 of course, the intelligent investor is just you know a, a masterpiece, but it somehow is not something that is you know going to cross over into the world of people that are not interested in investing. And uh, and I, I liked it so much that I actually bought copies for all of my my children, my godchildren, my nieces, nephew, and I wrote them a letter where I said I would pay them a couple hundred bucks to read this book. It wow. was so useful. And I said all they have to do to collect uh, the money is to write a one-sentence synopsis of each chapter. And this was before ChatGPT. But just in <laughs> case they read the cliff notes, uh, they also had to cut and paste their, their favorite sentence from that chapter. Oh, okay. So that was it. And I said, do that. You'll collect a couple hundred bucks. And I was saying to Morgan the other morning, I, I, wish, I wish I could short the relatives that did not respond and <laughs> right. go long the ones that did. Because you, it was- Well, you were saying like, a, like you think a fund of CEOs who write a letter to their shareholders yeah. every year that's a good screen. That it, might it's a good sign go of the other way. Yeah, it's a good sign of their sense of accountability. And to, but anyway, so then then I talked to our client team. I was like, we should send this to clients. We should order, you know, twenty thousand copies, uh, which we did. And then I said, and I'm going to reach out to Morgan. So I sort of cold called, cold emailed. He had to uh, sign all twenty thousand. Morgan, <laughs> I was like, get get your pen out. You're going to have writer's cramp, <laughs> like like George Jetson finger at get the end stamp, here. Get your stamp uh, out, more, more exactly, likely. Yeah. And and I said, you know, I I don't know if you know anything about our firm, but I just need to tell you how wonderful this. And I got the most wonderful note back from yeah. Morgan saying, I actually saw that order and I was curious where it came from, and I was really. I had I had known about Davis funds forever, particularly at the Motley Fool. Chris's grandfather is a, is a legend. And yeah. he's a legend for anyone in the industry, but yeah. Tom Gardner, the Motley Fool, just idolized your grandfather to no end. And he was he was Tom Gardner's favorite investor by far that he learned the most from. Why, so I've been think, following. Why do you think Davis. that was? It's a good question. I, I I don't know. I mean, the results speak for themselves. I think sure. there was a simplicity to what your grandfather and father and you do that really caught on to the Motley Fool, where it was talking to ordinary individual investors. So I had known about the Davis family forever. And then when I heard someone bought 20,000 copies, I thought, oh, that's neat. And it wasn't until a couple months later that I learned, oh, it was Davis Group. And I thought, that, it can't be that Davis Group. And I learned it was. So that was, that was so, cool. So I wanted to start with something where – so I, I, was, uh, I was on TV today having like a little bit of a heated argument with two people who I really like a lot. And they call themselves value investors. And I, there's nothing, you know, everybody has, I'm a GARP investor, I'm a growth investor. GARP always kills me because it's growth at reasonable price. You're like, what so are the other guys? Growth at unreasonable prices. Growth at an unreasonable price would be a great book title. Uh, so, so they're like, they call themselves value investors and they really are. And they really have a discipline and they, okay. 
And the argument was, I mean, it was stupid. It was with friends, but it was like, it's on TV. So everything's amped up. And it was basically like, like they're, they're investing in things that are obviously not what's hot right now. And they should not be. Um, and that's perfectly fine. Like industrials and, and whatever. And meanwhile, you have this AI thing like crashing on us like a wave. And the dismissal of it was like, all right, so why are these stocks going up or why are people buying them? And it was like, well, it's just behavioral. Like they don't know what they're doing. They're just – and I just took that. Like and I'm not like chasing every AI stock up, but I own Alphabet and I'm buying it. And I think it's – I don't think it's outrageous. It's at 22 times next year's earnings. I don't think I'm buying a bubble. Maybe I am. Yeah. So I just thought that dismissal, like, oh, it's over a 15 PE. It, it's a stupid investment. That's I'm paraphrasing. But I'm curious what somebody like yourself, when you see this, and you've seen it before, we've seen it with blockchain.com, wireless, 3D printing. <laughs> some of these turn out to be meaningful. Some of them don't. What's your What's your takeaway from a situation like this where the entire investing public becomes captivated by a new technology that seems to be emerging out of nowhere and just grabbing everyone's attention. Well, Gates had a great comment where he said, you know, new technologies uh, tend to be overhyped in the short term and underestimated in the long term. I love that. And, and I think that's exactly right. I, I mean, you know, it, it – it's funny. I want to say something about my, my my grandfather in terms of a culture. When, when big AI guy, well, I've read. <laughs> well, in, in a funny way, he was a big hot growth guy. Uh, okay. Because when he this part's boring, which is he he started life. He wanted to be in public service. He he took work for Governor Dewey when Dewey was running against Truman, and he thought, "I'm going to ride Dewey's coattails to D.C. I'm going to get a job in the State Department. It's going to be really cool." Dewey lo loses to Truman in that famous headline, famous. and uh, but he's still governor of New York. So my grandfather, who thought he would be, you know, deputy secretary of state or something, is instead Park deputy, Ranger. deputy superintendent <laughs> of insurance for the state of New York. Oh, okay. I mean, talk about a come down, right? Yeah. But the soldiers were coming back. The baby boom was underway. The suburbs are getting built. What's the hottest growth area? What's the first thing you do when you create a family in 1948? House, house and car. And insurance. Uh, you insurance. buy insurance. Life insurance. Because you're, you know, you need security for yeah. your family, family formation, life insurance. And the trouble with the way life insurance works is salesman sells you a policy. The salesman gets a commission. That commission might be higher than the revenue in the first year. But you're going to stay with that company for 30 years. So these companies were reporting losses, but they were creating huge value. So think of it as net oh, subscriber growth. Yeah. Right? So he's thinking, so he creates this idea of owner earnings, right? If I own the company as a regulator, I'm looking at these companies. Wall Street hates them because they look like they're just losing money. And he says, but, but they're creating value. So he resigns as deputy superintendent of insurance. He borrows $100,000, invests it entirely in insurance stocks. And it was like biotech. It was this enormous growth machine. So on paper, they're losing money this year, but they're creating this revenue opportunity for they're decades. They're getting a subscriber. They're getting a subscriber that's going to stay so with them LT, for 30 years. it's an years. LTV calculation. Absolutely. Okay. So that became part of sort of our culture. And he had all sorts of phrases for these, you know, growth stocks in disguise. And, and it started, and we, it's, honestly, a lot of our, our orientation over the years has been, he did it entirely in financial stocks over, I would say 95% of his portfolio was in financial stocks when he died and had been for his whole career. And he found 
different ways to find growth in that industry. So you think about Geico uh, or you think yeah. about Tokyo Marine and Fire. You know, so you had this growth in Japan starting in the 60s. He bought his first share in 1960 in, in Japan. And so he loved that lens of looking at an industry that was where the accounting sort of obfuscated and the uh, perception. Cable, 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 uh, cable was, was like a that. perfect example. Yeah. Like cable was a perfect example. And the best example of my career is Amazon, right? Yeah. Amazon, you know, this idea that I, I, we, we had this great example that we used to hold out for clients. We'd say, look, for over the course of 17 years, Walmart grew from a billion to 70 billion in sales. That took 17 years. Over 17 years, Amazon grew from a billion to 100 billion. So roughly that's the same. You know, it compounds <laughs> to almost the same. Right. Over 17 years. If you owned Walmart in that period, you would say, but yeah, Walmart earned a lot of money. Amazon didn't earn anything. Yeah. Look at the cash flow statement. If you owned Walmart for that entire period of time, sometime over that 17 years, you had to write a check for about, as I'm doing this from memory, but I want to say $8 billion. So you owned 100% of Walmart, you grew sales from a billion to 70 billion, and yet somehow, and you reported a lot of earnings, but when you went to your bank account, the balance was negative 8 billion. Now, why? Well, because they reported earnings, but they had to buy land and build stores and put in inventory. And so that's a capitalized expense, but it's a cash expense. Yeah. So when you looked at Amazon over 17 years, they went from a billion to a hundred billion. Somehow in the bank, they had about five or $8 billion of net cash generated during that 17 year period. It was no earnings, but- there was like a ten or fifteen billion dollar difference because well, because the difference is building it in building it in the nineteen sixties and seventies versus building it in the two thousands. Well, it was it was one was built by capital spending yeah. and one was built by investment through the income statement. Yeah, which was essentially we are willing to lose money on each new policyholder, each new prime member. We're going to give them free shipping, but we think the lifetime value of that subscriber is going to be much higher than the cost that we're paying. So, Chris, I, so Chris, I think you're giving me license to just go crazy and buy AI stocks. Well, <laughs> I I will say for for every I, I used to say for for every dollar Jeff made for Amazon shareholders, he he's going to lose twenty dollars for all the companies that wrapped themselves in the same flag, but actually had no lifetime value for let me that read this, Let me read this quote. Uh, hedge fund billionaire Steve Cohen reportedly urged investors not to miss the, quote, big wave of artificial intelligence and to stop fixating on a recession. The founder of 0.72 Asset Management and owner of the Mets said at a private SALT conference event Tuesday that focusing too much on recession odds may lead investors to overlook AI investing opportunities. Um acknowledge the types of jobs that AI would displace, but it'll create new jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, he said, quote, I'm making a prognostication. We're going up. I'm actually pretty bullish. His take is that AI is going to be a wave of capital spending and cost savings for corporations all at the same time. Stanley Druckenmiller just bought and loaded up on NVIDIA shares and made a new investment in Microsoft. Bill Ackman just bought a billion dollars worth of Alphabet. So like- Michael Banner just bought $10,000 worth of AMD and Micron. That's right. <laughs> so it's not just retail. It's like very, like some of the most successful living, working investors are uh, buying into this, or some would say kind of leading it. It makes it really hard 
to look at that and say, everyone's going to lose money on this. But this is a, this is a perfect tee up for, for Morgan's, the conversation that Morgan was having relative to his next book, which is what doesn't change. That's right. So the question is, AI is going to change everything. Well, of course, it's not going to change everything. It's going to change a lot of things. And so the first question is, what isn't it going to change? And so are those things undervalued? The second is, what is it going to change favorably? And the third is, who's walking dead and they don't know it yet, right? Yeah. Like think of the yeah. newspapers in the de early days of the internet. You know, you, you, you could have thrown a dart at internet companies and you were going to lose a lot of money. I mean, you had to get Amazon, but you would have lost money on a lot of, a lot of others uh, because all of the charlatans were in peddling the hot story. That's right. And, uh, and of course, you had time in Amazon. Right. Yeah. You had, and by the way, you had even had some time in Google. Not really. I mean, Google really came out and kept going up, but it came out in the ashes of that tech telecom meltdown. So, I mean, it was. I think it, it was, benefited from it. I think Google, Google IPO was 04. Yeah. Yeah. It did a, I think they did a Dutch. It was uh, a fabulous system. Yeah. It was a, it was sort of a reverse auction. Yeah. And, uh, and war, in terms of predicting the winners, wasn't Google like the 15th search engine to come to the market or something like yeah, that? Yeah. Ask they, Jeeves and. They were not the first. first not even right. First mover is not always I don't important. even think they were the first 10, honestly, or they might've been, but it was not. No, they weren't. Yeah. yeah Yahoo, Ask Jeeves. Those are those. Yahoo was the, the obvious. I remember Ask Jeeves. I remember using yeah, it. Yeah. 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 Excite. There's a bunch of them. Yeah. Um, so it's a, all right. So my prediction is we're going to have a full blown AI mania. And unless the Fed takes overnight rates to eight or 9%, like. And even so, still, you can have a bubble. Right? Even with still. High rates. And here's how early I think it is. Rates higher in the late 90s than they are. They're now. like 6% on yeah. average. Yeah. I, it's so early that we haven't even had the IPOs yet. I was that's, saying, there's that's no companies. That's, there's no companies. And that's there's part, no that's part of why these stocks are levitating is because there's so few. There's no doing like the picks and shovels of NVIDIA and Microsoft, right? There's no, there's no supply, right? I feel like there's very few products where the first time you use it, it's obvious that you're experiencing magic. Is it, is it, and you, you've made, I think it was you who made this of like, ChatGPT is what Bitcoin wanted to be. That's right. And in Bitcoin, it's been 15 years of it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. It's going to change the world. It's coming yeah. soon. Just We're wait, building. just wait, just wait. We're building. Whereas right. ChatGPT, the first time everybody uses it, you're like, oh, that's it. This is yeah. it. I can use this. You're and so right. I, I already know, I think, three realtors who use it to write their descriptions of the homes that they're selling. There's yeah. already, I think the closest thing in with the internet was the first time that you used AIM, AOL Instant Messenger. The first time you use it, it's instant. You're like, I can see how this is going to change my Everyone's life Everyone's first today. reaction to ChatGPT is, holy shit. I Everybody, wrote, a, I wrote right. a, I, as a joke, I wrote a legal document with a command. Like, I probably yeah. wouldn't, I pro I don't know if it would hold up in court, but just the idea it's that- good enough, in, though. At this yeah, it's stage, probably better than the 25-year-old paralegal that's writing most of this stuff when and you're paying that this you know, $300 an hour for the lawyer. Is it, more, is it morally wrong to invest on the premise that other people are going to come along- way thirstier than you are and pay much higher value. I'm a greater fool investor. That's my style. I, 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 and you know it's going to happen? That's, that's my strategy. It's bad, right? It's like a Soros thing. It's like whenever he sees a bubble, he rushes Wait, out to buy it. Wait, hang on, Chris. Yeah. What if you get out before the before crashes? I know, I know. I'm just, I'm it's, this is, but it's, it's, bad, ref, it's reflexivity. We, You know, it. the trouble is it works, but it's, it's, it's simultaneous that it works and that it's totally irrational. And so the question is, are you pragmatic enough to just do something that you know is irrational. And, and my, you know, I'm such a regret minimizer that I, I you know, I, I was telling Morgan this morning the, the, the story of a guy that used to work for me in the 
and and he got so he was always looking for a system, and uh, yeah. and he got really frustrated because he said, you know, Chris, if I had a blind monkey in my office pointing to the Wall Street Journal and picking a stock every day, and every single day that stock went up, day after day, week, month, year, three years, you still wouldn't put any money in that stock, even though it had worked. Every single day. And I said, of course not. It's a blind monkey. The process. And and it drove the him process crazy. process is bankrupt. Because he's like, you're yeah. just not being pragmatic. Uh, and uh, so- we, we were also talking about, there's a thing from George Soros that he talked about. His most reliable market metric, George Soros, was his lower back would start hurting. Yeah. And every time his lower back would hurt, there his, would be a market crash his coming. His son actually- His son talked about how, yeah. how crazy By the way, is. I love that story. It's definitely make-believe. It's, it's a great story, It's a great though. story, but that's bullshit. You think so? <laughs> yeah, I think it's totally make-believe. Right, I love I it, though. So I want to talk about the economy a little bit with you guys. And the question is, where is the crash? So I know it'll start as soon as this airs. But we got, myself included, we got really negative just in general, the, the public. We got really negative while unemployment was sub-4%. Anyone that wants a job can have one right now. Pretty much in any region of the country – Almost every industry, maybe not newspapers or commercial real estate, but like generally speaking, there's a job if you want it. This week, we heard retail sales turned positive and home builder sentiment turned positive. This is not what a recession is supposed to look like. Let me just let me give you the, the data and then I want to hear what you guys think. Americans boosted their retail spending in April for the first time in three months. A sign of consumers continue resilience, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Rosa seasonally adjusted 0.4% last month from the month before after declining in February and March. So that's one. Um, do we have this chart, John? This is U- U.S. retail and food services sales changed from the prior month. Like just one example. Aren't we supposed to be like breaking new lows in this blue why? line by now? Why, why, why are we, are we supposed right. to do that? Uh, we spent more on autos and dining last month because the Fed has raised interest rates 500 basis points. And everyone predicted recession. But that's it. Everyone, Supposed to. Everyone knows how impossible it is to predict the economy, but then they get flabbergasted when they can't do it. Well, uh, I, yeah, wait, I, here's build, builder, real quick. Builder confidence. This is like home builders responding to a survey. So whatever, take it with a grain of salt. Builder confidence in the market for newly built single family homes rose five points to 50 in May. Um, it's the fifth straight month of gains and the first reading of builder sentiment since July that wasn't negative. Um, of the index's three components, current sales conditions rose five points to 56. Sales in the next six months rose seven points. Buyer traffic rose two points. Again, with what the Fed has already done, I don't think we were looking for these numbers to start to reaccelerate to the upside. But yeah. maybe what, you know, what do I know? I'm curious what you guys thought, uh, I just, thought I mean, about I, this. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a forecaster. I don't follow the economy, but all right, next. This is, but no. What do you got? <laughs> but this is, this is example number 10,000 of people can't predict the, what the economy is going to do. Oh, like, how many times right. we got to learn about it? <laughs> you got that but, right. So, but, 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 then, but everyone's still surprised when they can't do it. But historically, when the Fed wanted to slow the economy, they raised rates and they were generally successful, right? So yeah, it's, I, I, I'm going to – I'd take the other side. I, I think it, it's we, – we've had – like, the, I probably – invested through maybe three big bubbles. So, you know, commercial real estate at the start of my career, the SNL crisis. It was 89, 90. Yeah, look through yeah, yeah. office buildings, look through apartment buildings, uh, and recession out of that. Then the tech telecom. 
and the financial. What does look through mean? Empty buildings. Yeah, empty buildings. Okay. Nobody, nobody's there. They're just hollowed out. And then, uh, uh, you know, and then of course tech telecom, and then and then the residential real estate and the financial crisis. Um, the bubble that we have gone through in the last ten years, there's no parallel in history for the scale of the bubble. I think if, I, if I'm doing this from memory, but I think like in two years, there was $30 trillion of debt issued at almost a zero rate. So there are huge losses out there, but it does. that's not even the, the, the most important part. The most important part was people invested based on the idea that money was free. In 3,000 years of history, Money has never been free. Yeah. Right? It just it doesn't make any sense. Quite I have an, some money. Quite an experiment we ran. It's an unbelievable experiment. So they printed all this money, but they they artificially stopped the inflation and the devaluation that would have happened by buying up all the stuff that they were printing. So it may be puritanical, you know, but I just can't believe that the popping of that bubble was, you know, three little banks, you know, who had some problems. That can't a, be it, A little right? bit of trouble in VC land, some markdown on private equity, and we're just going to coast on through this. I, I think it is, I think the ramifications are going to come out. And by the way, I don't think owning good businesses is a bad idea given the uncertainty of the world. So I wouldn't, but I think the idea that it's a time where you should be thinking about speculation in terms of, well, we'll take a flyer on a few future earnings. And I, I think that the unwinding of this bubble will have, and I think we may look back and say, we're actually already in a recession. It, it's just, it's rolling in a very unconventional way uh, because leases are rolling over slowly. Uh, private equity firms are going bankrupt slowly. Uh, you know, people are getting no bid on businesses. But what do you, as a stock market investor though, but how do you counter the argument? We're going to go here next anyway. How do you counter the argument of what earnings are doing? These companies have been incredible. They were, we were supposed to have negative 7% earnings this yeah. quarter. We have all the numbers. It's minus two. There was a great quote from Bank of America, something along the lines of never underestimate an American's company ability to retain their profit margins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I think companies, uh, this is why I like owning companies versus owning a lot economy. of other things. Yeah, yeah. Because companies are able to adapt. Companies have real resilience. But I just think that the, the party that went on uh, in the last 10 years was so extreme. And I, I think that you know, consumers have gotten used to very low debt. They aren't really adjusting their lifestyle thinking about these higher, you know, real estate is not really transacting. So there's a lot, there's a huge spread. Why froze the market? They don't a have lot marks. Is frozen. Yeah. And I think there's this sense. Did you ever read the book on the beach by Devil shoot? Yeah. Oh, it was just, it was the most nightmare of my childhood, but it was about a big nuclear war in the Northern hemisphere. Oh, and I the saw novel, the movie they based. Yeah. It's set in Australia and they know that the cloud is coming and humanity is going to go extinct, but it's sort of their last year and they're, they're partying and they're, you know, and there's this, it's just trying to describe the effects of knowing that this cloud is coming and not being able to do anything. So I wrote this last night at 9.05 in my computer, thinking about like the state of the American investor and just Austin, everyone. So I wrote, how can the worst be over? Referring to the stock market. How can the worst be over when the worst is yet to come? And I think everybody sort of feels that way, that things are going to get bad. And how is it possible that the stock market front ran it to the extent that it did, where it bottomed back in October, the NASDAQ was only down 35, the S&P was only down 25. How could that be it? 
Well, I one, I, I again, I don't think the market's the market, right? You, it, the, the narrowness, what you again, you're seeing is a lot of average companies have been struggling for some years, right? So you've seen this narrower, narrower group. That narrower group employs relatively few people. So going back to the Henry Ford sort of idea, if we don't, and and what has kept people up is refinancing. You know, it's like, well, you know, I. Uh, and that's over now. And that that is that's going to push the other way for some time. So, I mean, I own a lot of banks, and people say, well, given your sort of negative, how can you own banks? And my feeling is because they're prepared. They are literally prepared to go through another financial crisis. Like well, there's most most of them. Well, not, <laughs> not, to, not to like get too into the weeds about yeah. this stuff, but people are worried about higher financing costs. But like ninety percent of the debt of the S and P five hundred is fixed long term. So at the household level, it's probably even more. Everyone's got a thirty year mortgage. So and now you're locked into yeah. your house. Eventually, right. you might have to move. But household debt payments as a percentage of income is the lowest in forty years. Yeah, and it's way lower than it was ten or fifteen years ago. Like there's and, a lot that could go wrong and not come close to breaking a precedent. But every one of those homeowners that's feeling good about having locked in or every corporation, somebody is on the other side. And by the way, it's mostly not a bank. It's mostly somebody lent pension them the money. plans. Shadow banks. Yeah, it's all the shadow banks. And it's so, so I, you know, my, my grandfather always said, you always sound smarter if you're bearish. Mm-hmm. So and well, he's still right. And he was 100% invested or 150% invested his whole career. Is that the trick? Say, say I'm cautious, but be 100% invested. Yes. yes. Well, then, you I, win, then you win, right? Yeah. I've been doing that for 10 years. I didn't think anybody else you, caught you, on. You sound a little dumb or naive to be optimistic yeah. when the world is terrified. And But I think in this case, I, my, my view is, you know, we want to own businesses that that are resilient, that can get through. I don't want to own bonds. I don't want to own, because I have no idea. Like there's a lot of, I want to have some international diversification. I want to have businesses that have gone through all different types of cycles, because I don't want to optimize to some economic view. But I think that, you know, when we look, through it, individual companies, we're seeing a fairly steep decline beginning to roll through. And I just think there's been a little bit of that on the beach, sort of the summer before the war. Like we, uh, all, we all know that there is debt that has to be rolled, that cannot be rolled at prevailing rates. We we know it 100% for a fact. And so commercial real estate, uh, real estate stocks are down 80%. Yeah. Yeah. But the market it, knows too. But 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 the, it, the cost of capital is everywhere. It's not just debt. It's, it's PEs. It's what, you know, it was what people were willing to pay for earnings 10 years from now. It's, you know, I, I look at, you know, some of the consumer stocks at 22, 25 times earnings. Pepsi, and, a lot of these staples. You know, and I just think, boy, that looks very, very risky. Oh, no, they're safe. And, they're staples. Yeah, they're safe. <laughs> uh, let's yeah. Do, I want to do these charts, Mike, the, okay. uh, the uh, S&P net profit margins. So, uh, so I put these, these charts in the doc prior yeah. To prior to James Montier writing a mea culpa this week, so the big thing about that GMO's bear case was profit margins being a mean reverting series. I know, and that just hasn't happened. And I think one of the reasons. So we're looking at a chart of profit margins, excluding financials, going back to the seventies, and basically for the be- good part 13, of the last twelve or thirteen for the for the percent? yeah for the last twenty years, it's basically been up and to the right. And this isn't rocket science. This is it's the internet. This is Amazon. Right. This is it's Apple. Not. This is Microsoft. So these are yeah. companies that deserve to trade at a premium that have always and will. No, I don't want to say will always. And in the seventies, it was all railroads. Right. 
Right. Copper smelting. <laughs> right. That, hey, I mean, that's, copper looks pretty good. But is, this a, is this a story of more efficient corporations or is it a story of the makeup of the S&P 500? Well, or both? I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll also to tie it back to AI. You know, you think about what globalization did to the to the U.S. worker, and and of course the massive adjustment that came as basically all of this this sort of middle class was sort of put out of work, and you know, it they went one of two ways. They either became uh, what was Microsoft called knowledge workers, uh, uh, right. or, or, or 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 meth, or like it's yeah, bad. It was bad. It's bad, and uh, and, it, it's, and we're I, still feeling the repercussion of that yeah, displacement. And I think AI is going to do the same thing to a lot of white collar jobs. Yeah. Like, you know, I have a son who's a lawyer. I, I, I was just interviewing some uh, kids, I won't say the college, and I said, okay, you know, just between us in this room, uh, how many of you are submitting work written by ChatGPT now? Substantially written by it. That's how I got it, through Trump University. Yeah, it was like 80. <laughs> I never would have graduated. It was like 80%. And by the way, they run another program after it to insert errors uh, so that their teachers yeah. won't catch them. So, Incredible. you know, put double spaces and oh add apostrophes. And, uh, but you know, I can tell you all of those, you know, you think about what it was to be, you know, work on a machine line. Well, the functional equivalent of that is all through the knowledge worker uh, universe. You know, they're copywriters, they're editors, they're paralegals, they're lawyers. Uh, they're, you know, it is. So I it's think the new that it's the new assembly line. It's the new, it's what, what happened to the blue collar is, is, and in fact, the, the irony of it is I think the plumbers are in pretty good shape and Can't that's where you're seeing yeah. great wage expansion. And by the way, overdue wage expansion, you know, minimum wage went from eight bucks to basically 18 bucks. Can't find in about three years. You uh, can't, help, find them. can't find truck drivers. Yeah. Right. Our friend, uh, our friend, uh, uh, down in Richmond, uh, uh, we were listening to a country song that was called, I need, uh, you need the, uh, I need the work less than you need the work done. And uh, and so it's like, don't piss me off. And of course- But isn't that like that irony delicious? You've got this class of people who spent the last 10 years flying around to Davos, sitting on stages and saying, all these blue collar people are, you know, these poor people. Meanwhile, who's laying off? It's Netflix, it's Amazon. It's, exactly. It's all knowledge workers being laid off. Yeah. We don't have any blue collar people being Law laid off. Law firms are in front of, I think, a massive wave of, of, of layoffs. I don't know about accounting and some other, but these are big earning professions. They're the backbone of the suburbs. They're, you yeah. know, and so think about what happened to Hartford uh, when the insurance industry sort of got hollowed out. I mean, you know, Hartford. That's Hartford, it. Connecticut. Hartford, Connecticut. I mean, Hartford, Connecticut was an incredibly wealthy town. My understanding was it, it's, it sits up high. And the reason it became an insurance town was because if you insured a ship coming from Europe, you could literally stand up at the uh, the cliff and see your ship come in. Well, I don't know and about that's that. that's how but, you knew you were well, okay. What, what I know is that they employed you, tens so, of thousands serious. of people in these yeah. huge buildings. And basically a lot of them were clerks typing out policies, count, calculating. All of that got computerized and, yeah. and Hartford was hollowed out. And uh, so I, I just think that the ramifications of all of these things, to me, don't don't point to, uh, you know, a rosy 10 or 20 years for the U.S. consumer. Yeah. And, uh, and you are trying to sound smart, aren't you? I, I, I know. <laughs> no, but it's good. For, I'm still <laughs> ask me how much cash I have. The answer is like three percent. It's so good for I, profit because it's good for what you're describing is unfortunately very good for profit. Might be bad for society. 
but it's pretty darn good for pro- what's the next one that we have? No, but, I think, I, but I think this is rational. I'm always afraid, but I'm always fully invested. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so the next chart is just so I think that that up and to the right nature of profit margins tells a lot of the story about why stocks have done what they've done despite high valuations. Yeah. Um, so this was from Monte. We don't need to get too much into this, but that's when he wrote the post about how profit margins need to mean revert. The, li- the line. The line, I'm what sorry. What is that, 2013? So it's 2013, and it's, it's, a, de- it's a decade later, and they haven't been inverted, and who, who knows if they will. But profit margins have come down over the last several quarters until most recently, the first quarter. Next chart, please, John. They uh, It's too early to say whether or not this is, that was the bottom, but- This is not supposed to be happening with the cost of capital having done what it's done. They should be deteriorating, and maybe they will. Well, think of the components of profit margin, right? So you, you've got you know your cost of goods sold, you've got labor- You've got taxes. You've got interest. Uh, it's hard for energy. me to think any of those things aren't going up a lot and won't squeeze that. And and by the way, that is even true for a lot of the tech companies. You know, they they had and and so I think you can find that sort of that needle in the haystack. I think and I think it's what invest. I mean, we only own you know, 40 stocks out of, you know, the thousands that are out there because, you know, our general view is it's, there, there's not that many businesses that can be resilient in a tumultuous world. And if we don't get a tumultuous world, we're fine. But if we do, I think there's a lot of hopes and dreams that can get revalued fast. If that's all you got on the books is, is a fantasy or not a fantasy, a dream, a vision about where this business could be in 10 years. But, you know, again, here, that, here, that can change fast. But here's the, the other side of that is that revenue is going up by just as much. Like that was, well, so, that's where I wanted to go next. I'm glad you brought that up. The nominal revenues are at all-time highs too, I think. This, right, is, this is the rundown of, of this earnings season. Through Friday, we have 92% of the S&P companies have reported earnings. This is from Sean. 78% saw a positive earnings surprise, but 75% saw a positive revenue surprise. The earnings decline for Q1 in the books is – negative two and a half percent, six point seven percent was the estimation. So we were way more bearish than the reality. The forward twelve month PE ratio for the S P is now eighteen. The five year average is eighteen point six. The ten year average is seventeen point three. So we're at an average uh forward PE. You've got seventy eight percent of companies beating on earnings. But so uh, this is this is the thing. So so obviously Chris you are owning businesses and you think about investing in through that lens. Morgan, you've spoken about this a million times. It's just different. It's a mishmash of a million different objectives, goals, timeframes, all yeah. that sort of stuff. So to Josh's point about us beating low expectations, I know you don't give a shit about this in the short term, but I do. At least it's interesting. The S&P 500 is breaking out today to the highest level it's been since August 2022. Interest rates are breaking out of their range to the upside. You've got the debt ceiling looming. Everybody is positioned not for the upside. Yeah. And so that's how you get just people off sides. And again, this corrects itself over time, but in the short term, it could lead to some outrageous behavior. Yeah. Does anyone care about the debt ceiling too? Outside of- We'll, care, we'll care for one day when there's a technical default and then the outcry will be such that they'll figure out a Band-Aid to slap over it. Yeah. Nobody will really give, a, give, any, give, give an inch. Right. And we'll have another debt ceiling fight in a year or two years. Or less than that, yeah. Yeah. But I think if you, you know, if you think about it feeling like sort of a fragile world. I, I think that what we're, what we're forgetting is the nature of surprises, right? So, you know, nobody predicted Ukraine, nobody predicted COVID, right. nobody, uh, 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 these things can happen. And I, I, I just think the sentiment 
right now is nervous, but kind of holding. Everything seems to be okay. And and what we haven't seen is is sort of a panic. We saw panic in the banks. Like the I banks to, I just to, I wanted to ask you panic. about that. So SVB and Signature Bank, for I should say former executives, were in Congress this week. And uh, this looks pretty bad. Um, execs of Silicon Valley Bank are being grilled for the bank's failure. Many sold before the collapse on March. They sold their own stock. Wait, hang on. I think a lot of this, I don't know if all of it, but a lot of this was pre-scheduled sales. Yeah. So what? Nevertheless. So what? Do you think people so understand that? Good, no, I nevertheless. Think... The fact that I think there were shares sold the day before they went under. Yeah. Gregory. So just bad. optically, that's okay. not good. Put yeah. this Put this chart up, uh, John. Oh, no. We don't have this chart. This doesn't matter. All right. Uh, Gregory Becker, CEO, sold is a CEO of SVB. Sold 11% of his stake on February 27th, 2023. Uh, That's a lot. Daniel Beck, the CFO, sold 32% of his stake on that February 27th. That's a lot. Michelle Draper, the chief marketing officer, sold 25% of her stake in February. And by March 10th, it was gone. Like, that's problematic. Yeah, that's pretty bad. That's bad. Yeah. That's yeah but, I mean, but I guess, you know, we, we could spend a little time on these because, I mean, talk about something that was completely predictable. It wasn't predictable that they, they would collapse and there would be a bank run, but it was predictable that they had taken enormous risk. I mean, it was, we wrote a memo to our board in November sort of showcasing it happened to be First Republic, but just saying these three banks have outperformed our financial holdings by a lot, like 500 basis and points here's how a year. <laughs> and, and we think they're taking crazy risk. Yeah. And so that's why we don't own them. And so, um, but I think the, the bigger question is, why the hell did companies like Capital One go down 50%? Or, you know, why did the rest of the banks? And that's what I mean about you don't know what the trigger will be that could cause a massive revaluation downward because people panic. It was it uh, made no are we gonna sense. Have, are we going to have regional banks in 10 years? Well, yes, yes. yes we, we will they have trade to. Three look, time, will they trade at three if times If you're going to build a, a, a strip center uh, in, you know, in, in Waterville, Maine, the idea that you're going to go to J.P. Morgan to finance that, it just doesn't make sense. You're, okay. You've got a local banker that knows you, and you're going to go to Bar Harbor Bank and Trust or Portland or something like that, or Camden. And, and, and so I think that function is really important. I think the relationship of deposits, and it, it's, it, we'll see. But what I will say is that well, the four, top five— There's 4,000 of them. Do we need 4,000 of well, them? We, there used to be more, and every year the share of the top 10 has grown. Every yeah. year of my career. And that, it's and, a standout, too. You go to Canada or the U.K., yeah. and there's like five banks in the whole country. Yeah, they don't yeah. have that. Yeah. yeah. But in Germany, you have, you know, you had a handful of big banks, and then you had these, like, middle middle market banks that served local regions and, and were sort of mutual. So I think it will continue in just that path of consolidation. I think the big banks have better accounting. They have more capital. They have deposit inflows. They have a technology scale advantage, which really matters. They have more have you diversification. you noticed the change in rhetoric about the big banks? 15 years ago, the problem was they were too complex. Fat cats. Yeah. Well, no, they were like the complexity. Yeah. Now we don't say complexity. We say, look how sophisticated they are. They could absorb, they could absorb a, an ailing bank in one day. I know like the, no big, the thing asked. that upsets me the most, and, and we'll see how it plays out or worries me the most, is that I would say the big banks 
since the financial crisis have comported themselves fabulously, right? COVID, they were out putting putting credit out. We're I, working I with you. I completely agree. And, and we're going in this crisis. They're so like, hey, we didn't take any of this crazy interest rate risk. Jamie Dimon used to stand up at conferences as recently as the fall and say, you guys want another billion and a half of earnings. Mm-hmm. I can make a phone call and put it on now. I'm not going to do it because it's stupid. And uh, so- I thought we'll go, you know, it was obvious that there was risk in the system and that these guys will be rewarded. And instead, there's this sort of outrage uh, at uh, we're sick of all the banks. And so I don't quite know how to handicap. I do think that in the 1950s, banks, you know, had gone through the crash, the depression, World War II. By the 1950s, you ever see It's a Wonderful Life? Yeah, of course. So, you know, if you're an investor— the hero of that movie was Mr. Potter. Yeah. Right? He ran a good bank. That's he right. was he managed his liquidity. <laughs> he was opportunistic, you know, when yeah. the idiot brother-in-law is losing the check and yeah. you know, we like George Bailey, but that captured the zeitgeist of the 50s that, you know, the big bank was reliable, boring, uh not risk t- risk averse. Yeah. And so what happened? Banks traded at 15 times earnings, a market multiple. That's how long it took to get over the crash and the depression. And so our thesis on banks is, look, we went through the crash. We went through the financial crisis. We went through a massive wave of re-regulation. Then we went through COVID. Now we're going through the, but sooner or later, people are going to decide, you know, these banks are boring. They're trading at nine times earnings. The utilities index is at 22 times earnings. And by the way, you the think utilities they get a are paying out for being boring. For being boring, yeah, and very boring, reliable sources of growing dividends. Do you think there's five more um, SVBs and First Republics, or we've seen it? I, you I know, think, certainly, I think, I think massively change FDIC insurance if you get one or two more. Yeah, yeah. but I think, I, well, there is no such thing anymore. What do you mean? Is FD, FDIC insurance is it's? But if they if they make it explicit, everyone's covered. Well, they or, will, or they will, have, they will have to, though. Yeah. But would that stop a bank Everybody, run? What I, I actually do think I remember seeing that in Washington Mutual in 2008, that the majority of the deposits that were pulled were FDIC insured. Like, you yeah. can still get a panic even among insured yeah, deposits. You can. I feel like if there was another shooter drop with the regionals, I mean, hopefully this is, doesn't age poorly, but it probably would have dropped by now. Yeah. I was looking at a schedule. But I, I thought that, too, with First Republic. Like, it had its collapse, and then it just kind of meandered for two months, and then it went out of business. Well, like, yeah. What was going on they, in those two months? They had— But the it, customer base. They silent, silent bank run. In yeah. those, it, was it was still going silent, on. It yeah. was still going on. Uh, yeah. But John, it usually doesn't happen. It's usually thriving on Thursday and dead Friday. It John, usually doesn't have a two-month. Can we throw this up? So I was looking at on TD Ameritrade at the cash sweep vehicle interest rates. And from a dollar range of zero dollars to five thousand all the way to up to a million, and they have all these different tiers <laughs> of what they're paying you on the wow. cash. And uh it doesn't change. It's 35 basis points no across the board. Much, it's like no you get deposit, you can have three million dollars in cash, and guess what, buddy? 35 basis points. What is this? Are the banks being greedy? What, what Do they is, know human nature? This? It's inertia. People just aren't moving. Like, yeah, people are going to move. They're going to move. But well, not everybody's going to move. I think the argument for us at First Republic, and I, and I wouldn't talk about it if it was still trading, because I don't think you need to be throwing gas. We said for us. Fire. Were you on the board? Uh, no, no, no. I For us as investors oh, in okay. banks, but not in First Republic. So what, what we sort of said is they, for all, look, if we had a bank together that we created and we took five-year deposits in CDs, five-year CD, and we put it in five-year treasuries, according to all this hype Twitter feed on the internet, 
we're bankrupt. We have no equity. We put up $10 of equity, $90 of deposits. Now the deposit, uh, uh, and we put it all into five-year treasuries. The treasuries are down. That wipes out our equity. That bank is totally reliable, secure. You don't have to worry. But so you're only, the only thing that matters is if your assets and liabilities are mismatched. And so at a bank, you know, you use TD, we all use First Republic. There was a presumption that people with $2 million, $3 million deposits don't give a damn about earning 35 basis points when they could be earning four and a half. And we thought that is a strange hypothesis that's never been tested. Like we would assume I would move, you would move, we would all move. So there was this idea of the lazy affluent. Well, they don't now, move for 1%, right. but they'll move for 5%. But if you go to Wells Fargo or something and you say, look, I've got you know $700 in a checking account earning 30 basis points, am I gonna really move that into a money market? And of course not. So you start thinking what really matters is the combination of how big is the spread and, and uh, uh, how, how uh, uh, likely is a customer going to move a small amount versus a large amount. So that's right. sort of core funding. And how quickly do your assets roll over so that you can move up that, that march up that curve? If your assets are all locked in on 10-year mortgages, you're screwed because you thought that 10-year mortgage was going to re refinance in seven years. You know what? It ain't. It's going to, it's a person's going to die with that mortgage. And uh, so, but on the other hand, Capital One, you know, Capital One pays higher interest rates. It's all the old uh, uh, TD, uh, or no, what was it called? The, it, was, it was ING Direct. ING before. Direct. Yeah. Yeah. So they get, you know, all their, a lot of their deposits online. They pay higher interest rates. They have a longer dated asset book, but they're roughly matched. Like basically the, the life of the deposits equals. So we'll say, okay, we'll pay you 350. You know, Bank of New York, 100% of their deposits are super interest rate sensitive. So all of their assets are deposits at the Fed. So it, it, there's not a one size fits all. What I hate about this sort of Twitter panic is this idea, oh, mark to market, they have no equity. Well, mark the liabilities, mark the deposits to market. And if it's Bank of New York, Right, you're right. Those are one-day yeah, deposits. Yeah, the only asset they actually have is the confidence of their depositors. But yeah. so, but so the selling yeah, and the services that they, you know, the the deposit. It's you're right. It's confidence, but it's also convenience. What do you think about uh, calls to ban short selling specifically in financial stocks because of that confidence factor? Meaning they did the same if, thing in 08 and stocks still fell ninety yeah. percent. But from if that. I spread a bullshit rumor about uh, Intel or Pepsi, like the stock might fall but I probably can't bankrupt no matter how influential I am. Elon Musk probably couldn't bankrupt uh, Pepsi right. with a series of tweets yeah. about- Well, and it's, and it's credit default swaps. It's you, a lot, you know- You it, can do that though with a financial institution. You can yeah, bankrupt yeah. if enough people believe what you're saying and repeat it. So from that standpoint, I feel as though financials maybe could be set aside. I, thought, I also feel like SVB was so interesting because virtually every deposit holder is from the same social also group. Also a Twitter yeah. asshole. They, they, yeah. But they all they all live in the same neighborhood. Yeah. It's, actually same it's actually all amazing. I don't think you could do that out. with Wells Fargo because yeah. everyone's in a different social group. If one That's person right. yells fire, like no one else is listening to it. So I, th I think what happened with a lot That's of the cool. banks that had nothing to do with this Capital One, for example, was a rational overreaction. If you're a shareholder, it kind of made sense to panic a little bit. I'm not saying that that was the yeah. right behavior, but it was, how about this? It's, it was understandable why some people sold companies that they probably shouldn't have. Or panic, well, panic I would be say, the first, to, if you're going to panic, right. be the first to yeah, panic. Yeah, I think there I would were say calm, the, rational people who pulled their money out of SVB, their deposits out of SVB. Yeah. If, the you, if you see other people panicking and the bank relies on their 
they're feeling about it. Like it right. makes sense for you then to pay. Oh, totally. That is yeah, totally. What do you mean with the stocks? And, yeah, I'm talking and about stocks. And I would stocks. say the, the, well, that's, the that's wild right. card, you should say, no, you're crazy to panic out if deposits are pouring into your institution. Your institution is becoming more valuable. And this is the classic example of, you know, when people are panicking, you know, this is, is a classic value investor's dream. The business is getting more valuable. But there is a wild card in banking that's not just the confidence thing. It's also that the, how will the regulators respond? Because the regulators can't punish the dead banks, right? So they've got to go to the live ones. And so you think about after the financial crisis, you know, J.P. Morgan behaved very well. Wells Fargo had behaved very well. And yet they paid enormous fines. They paid enormous, uh, you know, they had- Right, uh, J.P. Morgan paid the Bear Stearns lawsuits. Exactly. Because there was no Bear Stearns. Nuwamu, Wachovia, all of those got paid by the companies that had behaved well. And so I think the rational reason that some people sold bank stocks in this crisis was not any concern that the banks were financially vulnerable. It's that they were regulatorily vulnerable. That the regulators could come and say, you know what, why you guys are getting all these deposit inflows. You're dancing on the, the corpses of these beautiful yeah. local community banks. How dare you? We're going to, uh, you know, insist that the government takes 30% of your equity. Or yeah, like sen senators and Congress people love community banks. Yeah. So here's the opposite. This is First Citizens, which bought SVB. Yeah, and that's, that's a, and that's a regional. Vertical. Yeah. 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 And that, and that's a regional, by the way. Yeah. Um, was there a was there something explicit, do you think, in the FDIC making sure that the first rescue wasn't JP Morgan? <laughs> the SVB rescue was a was like a Midwestern well, It had was, to be. Well, had first to citizens be. is it New England I or do I think optically I it, it couldn't be JP Morgan? It couldn't be, right? No. I think one of the hard things about the 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 banks is it's it's a little like China that somehow both Republicans and Democrats feel comfortable bashing it. It you know usually yeah. they split, but here it's sort of you know the Republicans you know are saying oh we don't like these elitist Wall institutions Wall Street banks and yeah. the Democrats are saying oh we love our little community bank and you know so it's it that creates a vulnerability that I think you know is 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 at real. I think it's worth investing through because you're getting paid for it with the enormous discount that they trade at and with the idea that for a lot of these banks this interest rate environment means their earnings are going up. Their deposits are flowing in. So their market share is growing. They have relatively little credit risk because all of that commercial real estate was regulated out of their portfolios right. after the financial crisis. So right. so I think they they'll be beneficiaries through this but I wanted I wanted to ask you about something um, I don't know if it's philanthropic, but maybe it's just like a societal organization question. Connecticut just passed this thing for baby bonds. Every financial blogger who writes about behavioral finance would agree. This is probably good. The, the big debate is, is more like how you fund it. Um, here's what Connecticut wants to do. Set up a $3,200 trust for every eligible baby born after July 1st to be eligible the household income you're born into is less than $65,000, okay? Okay. Um, they think it'll cost $600 million over the first dozen years and then another $165 million in interest payments. So, How's the trust funded? Is, it, is there cash going in well, or it's just another IOU? The debate is not should we do this because Connecticut has some of the worst disparity between rich and yeah. poor and they know they have to do something. Um the debate is like, what are we funding this but out But by of? the way, also, not, this is not really that important, but it was sort of unclear as to whether this money goes to everyone because here's and a quote. And then they can cash out at 18, you said? It's going to be used for when they turn 18. 
they could either go to college or start a business or buy a house in the state of Connecticut. Yeah. But it said, Connecticut Baby Bonds has the potential to transform the future of our state by providing opportunity and economic resources to the next generation of young Connecticut residents, regardless of the financial circumstances of their families. So I think- Well, that- that's the point. You Like, you talk about being born on third base. I, I was born into the, into the middle class. Like, the idea is not- equality for everyone. It's equality of opportunity. It shouldn't count that much against you if your parents struggled in there. So I think everybody, Republican or Democrat, agrees to that concept that the world would be a better place if there were more opportunity and we didn't have people born literally with no shot. The question is how you fund it. They, the treasurer's office estimates by investing the money, the accounts will grow to $11,000 or as much as $24,000, depending on when the recipients access them. An estimated 15,000 babies born each year are eligible. So the question is, for a state like Connecticut, for $600 million, if you're the politician that says yes to this right now, you don't benefit politically because this money won't be spent for two decades and you'll be out of office. Can a state state politician think that long in advance – and get behind something like this. And if they do, is it worth the $600 million? Oh, God, it would be so glorious. But but the but that I'm saying is that that cash, there needs to be cash that goes into an account. It can't be an IOU, right? And, and this is what the superannuation schemes like Australia, Norway, you know, that's what they've done. You know, Norway has $260,000 or something for every man, woman, and child yeah. invested in global that's stocks. The, that's the oil wealth. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's, you know, they bought Bitcoin. Australia says we're going to hold back, you know, 6% or 7% of your paycheck, just like we do here for Social Security, except they hold that back in cash and they give you a certain amount of control over it, like a 401k plan. You, you have to put it in, you know, various approved funds, but you can choose. If, if if Connecticut is really talking about funding an actual trust versus another IOU where it's just debt, then then I would say oh, I no, think they, it's a fabulous they, they're, funding. They're, yeah. And it's not a trust. It's like for the person. It's like you know you have it. You can count on it as a parent that that's coming I, to, the, I think, to the baby. I, I, I think I love the idea. I think a lot of people would. But in terms of funding it uh, politically, that might be tough because yeah. the money's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. You know this will get done though if they say, "Oh, and BlackRock is going to do the investing." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you know, it'll it'll they'll find a way uh, to get it. But isn't it kind of like the creation of the land bank? You know, land uh, grant universities. I mean, think of what the UVA has done for the state of Virginia. Yeah. I mean, our, our friend Tom Gaynor went there to go to college and never left and has helped create enormous wealth for the state of Virginia. So that provided opportunity both for students that lived in Virginia, but it also became a recruiting tool to bring families, talented people from out of state who fell in love with Virginia. So, you know, can, we do, we, can we do one more? Uh, we work. <laughs> uh, this should have been killed in the crib, and it almost was. They try to go public. It, $40 billion, I think, was the valuation. being They're discuss- shooting for 100 Shooting for $100. Sure, why not? What, this is, by the way, here's what's interesting. If not for the S1, it would have happened, I think. This is January yeah. 2019. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. January 2019, $47 billion valuation is, is what SoftBank paid in January. Tw- but Lindsay made the point. That should have been the top. It was the beginning. Yeah. It should have been the end. I know it was the beginning. But, anyway. But you could say that about like the Netscape IPO in 94 or whatever, that that should, but. But this crashed. And Netscape but, got a happy ending. AOL bought it. The WeWork debacle could have in an alternate universe so, been the top. All right. Yeah. So anyway, they yeah. did it as a SPAC. They said, oh, all right. Uh, no IPO, no problem. <laughs> we'll do the SPAC. 
this week it had a really bad week. It dropped 25%. The CEO's leaving. The chair, the, I don't know. Everyone's, everyone's leaving that was uh, connected to it. John, do we have this chart? This is, <laughs> this is WeWork as a SPAC. You could see it comes out December, 2021. Of course it did. Well, that was the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was worth 8 billion or 9 billion at the top. Now 500 million and, and, they, and I think they raised 15 billion or something, right? Somebody says the worst startup. 97% so, uh, loss. So worst investment yeah. of all time for a startup. I think SoftBank lost 12 billion. Let me, so let me read this. They burned 5.6 billion between 2020 and 2022. They burned 343 million in the first quarter of this year alone. Um, their burn is going up, not down. And when they came public, they were generate. They said they would generate profits adjusted EBITDA of 500 million in 2022. Uh, it was community adjusted. EBITDA, they actually so. they actually <laughs> lost half a billion instead. Um, but they still did 3.2 billion in revenue. The problem is they just lost money on every dollar of that. Uh, this is, I, we were talking about Peter Lynch earlier and how, why the book was Soft, dangerous. Oh, SoftBank lost 12 billion is, and the journal said it's the worst investment of all time. Yeah. <laughs> the worst startup investment of all time. But Peter Lynch being like, buy what you know. If, you, if it's a good product, it'll make a good business. I bought Peloton. And I think, I think <laughs> the hallmark of the tech bubble was a lot of really great products invented. Yeah. And almost no great businesses came out of it. Yeah. So WeWork is an amazing product. If you use it, it's amazing. Phenomenal. Peloton, amazing yeah. product. If you're, a, all user, terrible if you're businesses, a user. If you're using the product. Yes. And that's, and that's zero why, interest rates. And that's why they, yeah. the Peter Lentz assumption, which may have been true in the 80s when he wrote this book, that every great product was going to turn into a great business. Well, you know why? Because well, those says, businesses though, were not funded with a, um, infinity losses. Right, right. So I think in that era, it was right. But, but that's he also says that he's being taken out of context by the buy what you know. Yeah. Nowhere in his books does he say- Does he say buy what no. you know? Like no, the whatever's story, in your the refrigerator, sto the story just in the book was like his right. wife going to a grocery store and, and like pointing out a product and then he did research. Right. Yes. It yes. wasn't just blindly It, it wasn't what blind you what you know. Did. Fair. Yeah. But that's what it's been turned into. For, but I think, for sure. I think the WeWork is a perfect example of the difference between a great product and a great business. And there are so many of them that came out. There were so many great products. Are you hiring invented. any PMs well, from SoftBank? It's no, short, but, short, but, but, but I will say something <laughs> even worse about WeWork is that it's not just that WeWork was a bad business and destroyed it. WeWork made good businesses bad because if you owned an office building, you're mm -hmm. like, oh, Jesus, we got to put in free or we're going to lose our tenants. And so it's not – it was the free capital that WeWork got – destroyed businesses that were absolutely bulletproof for years because like, well, how are we going to compete with that? We've got to start discounting. I'm so glad you or, said that. Such a good I, point. I think that, I think zero, I think Robinhood destroyed the brokerage business. And yeah. Netflix destroyed yeah. Disney. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now yeah. Robinhood's an $8 stock, but Charles Schwab is a $50 stock. Yeah. And it's almost unprofitable to do brokerage business now. I guess the consumers why won. they had to turn into a bank or chose to turn into a bank. I guess the consumers win, but like, I don't, Nobody feels like they're winning. Yeah. So that's the problem. Who, who did we – we had Bernstein ask the question. Which what Bernstein? Uh, William Bernstein asked the question. Uh, we had dinner. We had dinner at a uh, steakhouse. We had like Zweig and William Bernstein and – Housel. You were there. Oh, really? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when I told you to, how to promote your first book. Did you listen? I don't, I don't remember you saying that. No, it didn't work. <laughs> I guess you didn't want an <laughs> eminence, apparently. No, no, no. You said, I'm not sure I'm going to promote it. I said, leak a sex tape. <laughs> you remember? Did you Next do book. It? Next book. Okay. All right. So uh, Bernstein- that you say that, I do he, remember he did that. Say that. <laughs> he did say that. Bernstein loved that. No, Bernstein said, what happens if interest- What happens to society if there's no cost of capital ever again? Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. And thank that, yeah. God that future 
was curtailed where it was. Because to your point, like we work made owning office building. I mean, the pandemic made it worse than that, but still, like all of a sudden, everyone has to compete with free. But guess there's what? A, it could have quote, been. I, I read this quote lately. Is uh, recently it was from the early two thousands, and the quote was: AT and T laid off fifty thousand workers chasing WorldCom's phantom profits. Yeah, <laughs> like WorldCom was right. was creating fake profits, and AT and T's like, we have to match them. How do we match them? Lay off all these workers. So that's when like a bad business but can push a good business. Streaming to do is a perfect things. example. Yeah. Look what Paramount did, and Warner Brothers, and Disney chasing Netflix. They yeah. all did. Yeah. Well, and e ESPN announced they were. They're going to do a direct stream of their service. I, I read today just on the way over here. And I was thinking, you know, the thing about ESPN's model is they got paid a subscription fee for everybody who had cable. And you could not charge enough to just the users that watched ESPN. And so it was a little bit like in the newspaper ad days. I used to say, so, okay, newspapers lose their ads. Just raise the subscription price. But if you're making $4 on your ads – you can't raise the paper price to four dollars. It was yeah. like there was no way out. And so even if so, even if you're worried that the worst is yet to come in the economy, and I, I agree with you, on balance though, it's still probably bullish that there is an interest rate again. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, they're better. There's yeah. a cost of capital yeah. Yeah. more important. Than I think that. it would be great if for the next five or ten years interest rates average five percent. That would be, yeah. be it'll great. probably limit the amount of SPACs. Yes. And I think we're, <laughs> right. we would all be okay. okay. Yeah. We would right. all be okay yeah. with that. Yes. Do you know how Elon Musk talks about how, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was the most important book he read? He, you know, he used to talk about because they, you know, you invert, you realize that that asking the question is sometimes more important than the answer. And yeah. but there there's a scene in that book that he's never mentioned, but reminds me of this is, you know, this hapless sort of de our descendants, you know, crash land on earth. And uh, this visitor says, well, everybody seems so happy. And the guy says, well, we told them that leaves are money. And so they all suddenly feel very rich and they're walking <laughs> around with leaves stuffed in their pockets and they all feel rich. And you realize, well, of course this is going to end badly, yeah. but for the moment, everybody feels rich because all those leaves are money. That we was 2021. And we, and we yeah. literally did that. Yeah. You yeah. have fun on the show today, guys? Yes, that was good. Yes. I was just here for moral support for Chris. Oh, you were. Was. I, was, I was a little nervous at being my first time. But wait a minute. You great. have a podcast. Well, yeah. So yeah. It, How's that yeah. going? So if people are like, I, I wanted to I'm hear more of Morgan, let's tell them how they can do that. I have a podcast now I didn't I had been thinking about it for years now what is actually, it called it's I haven't really named it yet so I call it the Morgan Housel podcast so I'll change the name eventually yeah it's, yeah. it's, it's like the Dave Matthews band oh you know what would be a cool name for a podcast the Joe Rogan show <laughs> <laughs> you should do maybe do that I haven't but I've been thinking about it for years because that's naturally what people like like, like we do and Patrick O'Shaughnessy called me up two months ago. And he just said, what is it going to take for me to convince you? And to get you on what, Colossus. What you and it was, <laughs> that, that, that may have been part of it too. Yeah. But I recorded the first episode an, an hour after that call. It was just, it was like the kick in the now ass. Now you're doing you mostly it. COVID conspiracy theories. That's it. It's mostly okay. COVID conspiracy <laughs> How's stuff. How's that going? Right. <laughs> no, it's cool. I still don't know if it'll, if it'll No, but last, what are you doing? You're doing, you're doing your stuff, which is what people want to hear from yeah, you. Yeah, it's mostly riffing off of old blog posts that I wrote. But most people have not read them. So. Right, because I think the overlap of audience of people who read blog posts versus listen to podcasts is actually not that, not that big. Not that big. Yeah. So if I'm just repeating what I already wrote, it's actually – I think that's actually a great way and to do it. And also the stuff that you write about, you know, as Chris mentioned, it's like timeless stuff. It's timeless. It yeah. always matters. The audio book of Psychology of Money outsells the physical book two to one. Wow. It's like listening, which I never in a million years because I don't listen to audio books. You have a good, you have a good voice though. You have like you, a good you. presentation. But – I never in a million years would I have thought that because I read physical books. So I was just kind of blind to the fact that way more people prefer to listen. 
and you and I were talking about this earlier. He just did a not to brag. It's when I they're- read, I read physical books. <laughs> yeah, you did. Do you? <laughs> I only read Do the you read classics. Those you? No, go on, I'm listening. In uh, Latin. No, I never read any of these. You and I were talking about earlier about how people multitask now yeah. more than they used to. So they yeah. don't sit down for an hour and read a book. They listen to an audiobook while they're doing the dishes. I, can't, I can't single task yeah. anymore. Yeah. I'm incapable. I get it. And that's probably what social media did. To I us. cannot we do can't just sit down and you've talked about this too. It's the same for me. If you try to read sit down and read a book, you got to put your phone in another room. Or every other page or you got to check, check Twitter. You yeah. can't have children in your house yeah. and sit next to them reading a book. No. It's almost like it it, it should be illegal. Like your kid's impression of you should not be my dad is more engrossed in this piece of cardboard yeah. than having a catch with me or kicking a soccer ball with me or asking me how my day was. Yeah. You really can't do that. Charlie Munger used to say that his children thought he was a book with yeah. legs. <laughs> right. So listen, so that was his choice. Like with all due respect to anyone that is like trying to read three books a month with kids in their house. I have to tell you, I think you're going to regret it. It's a hard thing. Yeah. So I would, I would actually say that it's a, I, I, I say this, going, I think it's actually a better thing than looking at your phone 75 times. That I agree with. Because if it's the they, choice of book or a phone, let your kids see you reading a book. Yeah, because I agree with that. at least they're yeah. getting a story and, and they learn <laughs> in stories. They think it's stories, but boy, I, you know, that, that idea of the parents always checking their phone when they're with their kids. This might be completely wrong, but is there any logic to if your kids see you reading, they're going to be more likely to read themselves? No, Probably they're going to be not. like, nerd. <laughs> well, one thing about Patrick, and he tells a story about Jim, his father, anytime Patrick O'Shaughnessy had a question, his dad would point to the bookshelf. And he must have had a huge bookshelf. Look it up. But this pre-internet, I guess, or yeah. early, but he said, there, there are the books, go find the answer. Yeah. And obviously Patrick is a, a superstar probably in no small part because of that type of upbringing. So I don't want people to think I'm anti-book. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, Philistine here. I had no idea. <laughs> you will have plenty of time to read a million books yeah. when your your kids uh, are out in the world yeah. as their own people. That's good it's, advice. It's like the it. way I, at least that's why I stopped reading. But if you're if you're listening to podcasts while you're doing dishes, going for a run, commuting. Oh no no! Now be. I listen to podcasts while my kids try to talk to me. It's way, <laughs> <laughs> it's way it's way better. All right, we're gonna do favorites, and we're gonna let you guys get out of here. And uh, this was so much fun. I could have I could have stayed in this room for another two hours. Like truthful, you know, I don't know if you guys feel that yeah, way. I feel like we just started. I feel like we just started. We barely got to anything. Um, favorites is where we tell the audience about a book or a podcast or a movie or something that they might have missed. And, uh, I'll start as an example. As right. an example. As an example. Michael really likes Succession. No, a show yeah. on HBO. No, Citadel. Uh, the market maker. I just am enthralled by them. No, there's a show on, on Amazon Prime called Citadel. I haven't watched it yet. And, it. Yeah. and pitch it. What is it about? I'm, I'm going to. It's it's uh, it's hedge fund. It's, it's spy, CIA, espionage, Jason Bourne. There, there there's memory loss. Um, and I just found out that it's only six episodes, which in my mind, you get like a 25% premium for that. I want to be in and out. There's almost no reason for a show to be eight to 10 episodes. Anything they could do in eight could be done better in six. So set it all on Amazon. It's good. It's good enough. Sopranos used to do like 20 episode seasons. Yeah. yeah. Who, has, who has time for that these Me? days? All right. What, what do you got? I'm, yeah. a, I'm a big Ken Ken Burns fan, and I learned a month Ooh. ago that there's one I had never, a documentary he wrote that I had never heard of. It's called Horatio's Drive. And it, I think it's one of his best, but nobody's ever it made no made no. What is it about? In 1903, is a guy named Horatio Nelson who was at a bar in San Francisco with his friends. Cars were brand new. It was still like this, like oh, have you heard about cars? It's like no, no one was using them. There were really no roads. And Horatio Nelson said, "I'll bet you a hundred dollars I can drive from San Francisco to New York 
Okay. I, I bet you I can do it. And his friend put down $100 and said, deal, let's do this. And he did it. And it took him over a year to do it. And the documentary, it's crazy. Like an hour outside of San Francisco, his tire pops. And he has to cable the car company and have him send a spare tire by train. And he just sits oh there. For, and the whole, the whole journey across the country is that. It takes him over a year to drive across, across the country, but he does it. Pre-maps, pre pre-roads. Everything. Pre-everything. And pre-maps, the amount of time that he would have to backtrack, sometimes for a week, because he was he just got lost in the middle of nowhere. He's in the middle of Nebraska on, on some horse and buggy trail, and he gets lost and has to turn around. It's an amazing story, and it's a hilarious story. It's him and his dog, Bart. How do you watch it? What is it? What uh, streaming service is it on? So this is another thing. On Prime Video... For $2 a month, you can have every PPS documentary, which there are thousands of them that are so good. It's okay. $2 a month. That, that was a good one, too. Very cool. You don't mute your computer? What? Yeah, it's not my computer. You know what it is? My phone audio is going through my computer. What is happening? I don't know. I'm sorry. It's phone it's audio through the computer. I blame John and Duncan. <laughs> uh, By the way, you know who else drove across the country in the 20s was Eisenhower. And and it was part of his inspiration for creating the, the, highways, inter- the, yeah. the highway, yeah. interstate highway system, is he couldn't believe you get from one state and there's no certain connectivity. And there's, anyway. Well, it, uh, if not for the interstate highway system, we wouldn't have had the, the bank robbers in the 30s, yep. which then you needed to create the FBI for. Um, you have you have a favorite for us? Well, I mean, I I will shamelessly plug every one Psychology of, 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 money? of Mor- Morgan's <laughs> books. But if you force me to go outside of my comfort zone, uh, the, the the only other book I've read recently that I found very useful, but not it's a different type of book, was a book called Americana, mm. and it was recommended to me. I think it may have been by Charlie uh, uh, Munger, but I, I can't remember for sure. But somebody had recommended it. I ordered. Uh, a book called Americana from Amazon. I read it, beautiful reviews, a Nigerian uh, immigrant, and she's a hairdresser, and she goes back to Nigeria. And I went back to the uh, person that had recommended it. I said, it was a beautiful book, but I'm surprised it didn't seem like your style. And they said, well, what do you mean? It's a history of American capitalism. Yeah, I said, oh, you brought oh the wrong I one. brought the wrong one. <laughs> so this is Americana. I think it does not have an H on the end. The guy, author, is named Boo Shravanasan. Okay. And each, each chapter is the history of a single industry in, that was part of the formation and creation of where we are today. So it starts with the Mayflower Compact. It ends with the Internet. And it does semiconductors, highways, canals, cotton. Just, and what so, makes it so good is each chapter stands on its own. And each chapter also talks about who financed it and how. Like, did people get rich on it? Was it a government program? Often the per, the inventor got nothing or sold it out cheap. I'd love to read so that. So it's a fabulous, fabulous book. And, he, and he's a very interesting, articulate guy. So I'm going to use my favorite to just play something very quickly. Um, um, is, is one of market share and uh, margins and profitability and things like that. Um, my philosophy is, is kind of very simple, and that is that I've been on the Forbes 400, I think, since it started. And if you look at the list of people on the Forbes 400, and you eliminate the people who inherited the money, everybody else went left when conventional wisdom said go right. So Fred Smith was a kid at Harvard, and he'd inherited $14 million, and He'd written his uh, uh, doctorate thesis on a concept called Federal Express. And he invested $7 million and 
got the company started. And then the guys who managed it went back to him for the second seven million. And he got to find out how much he really believed and how much he wasn't paying attention to all the people who said, interesting idea, but it'll never work. And the rest is history. So you know who that is? Sam Zell. Very good. He's got a pretty distinctive voice, you right? Know, you heard the news. Well, this okay. is not out of the, completely out <laughs> okay, of the I, was, I thought it was. This uh, is going to be awkward. So we want to say, wait, what? <laughs> uh, Sam Zell, 81 years old. Uh, 81? Yeah. Okay. Sam Zell, 81 years old, legendary investor, um, passed away uh, today. Today's Thursday. Uh, did you ever, meet, you ever meet Sam? Oh, yeah. Yeah? A number of times. What's the best Sam story that I haven't heard? Let's start over. Did you ever meet? Did you ever meet Sam Zell? I, I, I met Sam Zell at a bunch of conferences okay. over the years, and I just loved that he was always iconoclastic. Hey, did he tell any great woodcutter stories? No, <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, so I just thought what was really interesting about Sam is he's the one guy, not the one guy, but like think about how many people in an asset class, almost like he's become synonymous with an asset class. Yeah. He was the founder and chairman of Equity Office Properties. He sold at the top. Like he did the thing that almost no prominent investor who came to become synonymous with their asset class was able to do. Yeah. And in 07, when the whole globe was clamoring for office properties in Manhattan, he sold it to BlackRock. And uh, I think they like what they got out of the deal. Probably not the timing, but he did it. I, I mean, that's pretty impressive stuff. And and always so independent in his thinking and is so exuberant in his life yeah. and his storytelling. Yeah. And and he uh, he has a lot of great, really memorable lines. So for my favorite, I'm going to recommend people Google this. Trent Griffin collected some of Sam Zell's greatest hits, things he said, things he's talked about. It's a blog post and it's called A Dozen Things I've Learned from Sam Zell about investing and business. So you can find that via Google and uh, highly recommend spending 10 minutes reading that. Okay, we had so much fun. We're going to wrap it up here. want to thank uh, Duncan, John, Sean, Nicole, Rob, everyone behind the scenes who does so much to make the show happen each week. Special, special thanks to our guests, Chris Davis, Morgan Housel, um, you guys are, where do you want people to follow you, if at all? Twitter? I'm, I'm still on Twitter. I know you're not, but okay. I'm still on Twitter. Are you at Morgan Housel on That's Twitter? It. Yep. And Chris, okay. you're on TikTok? Chris, TikTok mostly. <laughs> at Is Chris that the Davis one where you swipe? I'm not, I'm not so current on this. Okay. All right. You guys are, you guys are awesome. This has been such a treat. Thank fun. you guys so much. And uh, to, to the viewers, if you like what you heard, make sure you leave us a review. A rating goes a long way. We have to trick the algorithms into believing this is actually a good show. So please, so please help us out. Everyone have a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Right, so are you warmed up? Like you yeah. wanted to? All right. I guess I couldn't. Uh, couldn't, couldn't. Let's start recording. Let's start recording. Too much. <laughs>